Breakthrough Real Estate Investing Podcast, Episode 22. and welcome to the Breakthrough Real Estate Investing Podcast. We put this show together to inspire you and help you break through to the life that you want to live through the power of real estate investing. My name is Rob Brake and here with me today is no one because Sandy is off doing real estate agent stuff and couldn't make it to this interview that I have coming up here with Chad Herbshot. But uh, before we get into that interview, I just want to mention again that everyone should go over to BreakthroughREIPodcast.ca, check it out, and get our free download, The 7 Freedom Activators that you can trigger in your property starting right now. It's a free gift to you on how to manage your properties better, make them work for you instead of you working for them. Also, please go over and leave a rating and review on iTunes, which is another great way that you can access this show. And one more thing I wanted to mention is you can look Sandy and I both up on Twitter at Rob Breakthrough, and you can find Sandy at the Sandy McKay. McKay is M-A-C-K-A-Y. So this interview that I have coming up was originally supposed to be part of episode 21, which was the episode about the Toronto Investor Forum. And Chad Herbshot is one of the speakers that you can expect to see there this year in 2015. But, you know, we just got talking and it went actually pretty long. You know, by itself, it uh, made up a full show. So I thought, hey, why not? Let's just turn it into an episode all on its own. And Chad, what he does is a lot of uh, U.S. investing. So you're going to learn a lot about what he's doing down there in uh, sunny Florida, as opposed to where we are up here, well, at the time of this recording, freezing our butts off. But, uh, you know, I guess it comes with the territory. So here it is, my interview with Chad Herbshot. Hey everyone, it's Rob Brake from the Breakthrough Real Estate Investing Podcast. Sandy is off doing real estate agent stuff, but I am here with Chad Herbshot, one of the great speaker presenters at the 2015 Canadian Real Estate Wealth Investor Forum on March 28th and 29th at the International Centre in Mississauga. Hey Chad, how are you doing? I'm great, Rob. Thanks for having me on the show. Oh, it's going to be a lot of fun here. So I guess we'll jump right in. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure. Well, just first of all, I just want to let you know that I'm calling from uh, sunny Florida, where it's relatively warm compared to the Toronto area right now. So part of my uh, business is is situated down here. So I, uh, I'm down here fairly often, at least once a month or more. So um, yeah, I get the pleasure of looking out and uh, enjoying the sunshine and no snow at the moment. So yeah. <laughs> um, so I guess maybe I'll start out where I, where I started out. Um, like many that got into real estate, I stumbled upon the Rich Dad Poor Dad book. I read a few of the, the series in that. One thing that I still remember this day that it said in the book is, you know, there's opportunities all around you. You just have to keep your eyes open and know, know where, to, where to look for them. And one of them said, you know, there could be just a, a small 
newspaper ad in your uh, local paper, like something as simple as that, give the, the number a call. You've got nothing to lose. So sure enough, I'm within a month, I'm looking at the local newspaper. I live in Oakville. It's called the Oakville Beaver. The ad said something about learn how to rest, invest in real estate without having to swing a hammer or worry about uh, long-term tenant problems, issues, and that kind of thing, fixing toilets. Um, and all it said was call the number. So I thought, well, this is exactly what Rich Dad, Poor Dad said, look out for the opportunities. I called the number, and it was a 24-hour recording, I guess, and it just said to leave your mailing address, which I thought kind of strange. I thought, well, what? why would they want my mailing address? But they said they would leave, they would send us a, a package. So I left my address, and sure enough, a couple of days later, a, a package arrived in the mail and uh, had a bit more information about the, what this uh, real estate investment program was. And they were offering a class, and it was free to uh, whoever they mailed these packages out to. So I attended the class, and it was on a Saturday morning, I remember, and it was two guys, and there were maybe five or six people in the room. And the very first thing they did was hold up the Rich Dad, Poor Dad book, if you could believe it. And I'm like, oh, this has got to be a sign. This is you know, definitely destiny. So, um, yeah, it, it basically just uh, evolved from there. Um, I, I don't know whether I'm allowed to mention other groups on the show or not. But, oh, sure. Uh, Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Um, so their, their names are Tom and Nick Carazza, and I'm sure a lot of people, a lot of your listeners have probably heard of them. They own uh, Rockstar Real Estate Brokerage, and it's in uh, the Western GTA. And the main focus is on uh, rent-to-own properties. So that was back in uh, 19, uh, sorry, 2007 when I started out, started doing the rent-to-own stuff. And, you know, got a few properties under my belt, and everything was going great, but I was interested in bigger deals, I guess, you know, wanted more cash flow. And then I got into uh, looking into the student apartments uh, just because the cash flow was that much better. So I invested in a student apartment. It was a, a 10 bed in London, Ontario, which just was fantastic cash flow at the time as well. I guess over the years, you know, I was always looking for different opportunities where I could increase my, uh, my cash flow and uh, just increase, increase equity. So I was looking for opportunities that that I could find to do that for me. I think it was three years ago I attended the uh, the Real Estate Wealth Investor Forum in Toronto, and there was a, there was a few people there, a few uh, sponsors that uh, were doing presentations on investing in the U.S. So I had never even considered investing in the U.S. I thought that would have been crazy to do such a thing from from another country. But you know, a lot of people own properties down here in Florida, and you know, as vacation homes, and some of them do as vacation rentals. But I never really considered doing them as a, just you know just buying them in as a, as a real estate investment, pure investment. Well, I attended a few of the pre- the presentations, and uh, yeah, that was that was just uh, blown away <laughs> at what I saw. Um, I, I just couldn't believe the numbers I was I was seeing. Um, you know, the price to rent ratios were probably like one third to one half of what most Canadian properties were at the time. So I thought, wow, this is this is something I think I want to get into. So, now what year was that? Uh, so that was I'm pretty sure that was three years ago. So back in 2012. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the last three years, that's what my uh, major focus has been ever since. So, so how do you get in there and find like who do you have working with you down there to bring you the best deals? I guess how are you tracking these down? So when I first started out, I actually, uh, actually one of the presenters at uh, the, the forum um, was, uh, I guess you call it a, a guru, <laughs> one of the gurus who um, 
you can you can sign up for their seminars and they teach you all about investing and what have you. It, it was a it was a I wouldn't say it was worth its money, but I did learn a, a boatload from joining that program and how to invest in the U.S. But the the program was kind of more tailored to beginner investors, so I didn't get a lot of uh, knowledge from that. But what it did teach me was uh, how to buy down in the U.S. It was a Canadian-based uh, company that you know had figured out how to buy buy U.S. properties, invest in properties. <clears throat> He'd been doing it for years and years and years. Um, so back when I started out, um, you know, the, the first thing they focus on or make you f- or tell you to focus on is building your team. Um, and the number one person on your team should be a realtor. And you need to find someone that is focused on real estate investing, not just, uh, you know, a person that's going to buy you a home and then go on to the next one. They need, you, you want to find someone that understand the investing side of business. Uh, so I, I reached out to, Backing up a step, another thing they um, they would teach you is to pick a market and just focus on it and learn it like the back of my hand. I, I've been coming down to Florida with uh, my uh, wife for a number of years because her uh, parents have a have a place down here, and so I thought, well, I might as well focus on Florida since I know the market fairly well, <clears throat> all the areas, the neighborhoods. Um, so that so then I reached out to a few realtors. I just wasn't getting the time of day from them. You know, I'd ask them to represent me and. You know, you'd send out an email, you make a few phone calls, and they, they were just were not getting back to me. So at the time, they kind of give you a coach in this program, and my coach said, "Well, you need to find someone who is uh, who's hungry in the business. You know, a, a fairly new realtor who knows how to invest in real estate. You know, as an investor as well, and uh, someone that hasn't been around the block for 30 years and uh, already has the rolodex of clients that they cater to. So that's what I did. I went out and found a realtor that." Uh, you know, fairly new in the business as well, and that was that took me a few months to find him. But once once I did, we started putting offers in. I'm trying to remember the exact numbers, it was anywhere between three and five a week. The market was so hot at the time. Well, it still is. It's probably even hotter now. But at the time, uh, just we're not getting any offers accepted. It was mainly a function of how competitive the market was, and you have to know the right players. And it's kind of like a. a an old boys club, I guess, down in different parts of the state. So I didn't, that I didn't really realize until, you know, after getting into for a while and, you know, having at least 50 offers out there and hardly any of them getting accepted. Finally did get a couple accepted, but they were, uh, I think we like paid far, far more than we should have at the time because they were, they were distressed properties, foreclosures. And I'm realizing, well, these are the price of retail sales. Why am I, why would I spend this much on a, on a distressed property when, you know, I could find a better deal elsewhere. So that, that kind of led me into uh, what I focus on now. And that was, I thought there's got to be a better way of finding the better deals. So I thought, well, I'm going to start looking into the the county auctions or they're called the courthouse steps or there's a number of different terminologies down here. So basically what that is, is a, it's a foreclosure that uh, hasn't, the bank hasn't actually taken it back yet. It actually goes through the sheriff's sale first. And then if uh, the bank gets enough, if they bid, if whoever uh, the third party bids enough on the property, then the bank will relinquish the property to the new buyer. Uh, but generally, two thirds of the time, the bank doesn't get enough money and they take it back to themselves, and that's when it becomes a true foreclosure or a, or an REO. I spent the next uh, few months learning the the auction buying business. It's a steep learning curve, that's for sure. And the one thing I did was. I teamed up with a, a local person down here that already knew how to buy from the auctions, um, had the experience, boots on the ground, knew all the areas, knew the, the good properties from the bad. So I teamed up with them, and 
him and another guy who was a kind of like a consultant that a genius at finding these properties on the auctions through the auctions. Uh, so I, we formed a joint venture partnership where I, I was kind of like the financing person and they were the, the boots on the ground and did all the, the legwork. So, so that's kind of how I uh, got started and then where I've, where it's kind of led me. So there's a lot of competition doing something like that. Do you know, so when the banks take it back, let's say, do you know where the offer needs to come in to get it accepted? Like you probably felt all this stuff out and, and realize, okay, they need to get this percentage or that. There's a system, I guess, that you've had to develop. Yeah, well, I, I realized, you know, when I was just doing the uh, offers on, like these these are all um, properties that were listed on the MLS. I realized after a while and searching around on different uh, real estate websites and um, reading different blogs and forums, what have you, that even though it's a higher offer, highest offer, it may not necessarily get accepted. It's... <laughs> Like I said before, sometimes there's an old boys club here. And that was at the time the hedge funds were really, really rampant, buying everything and anything they could at the time. So I was finding out that if, you know, a, a person came in, like a hedge fund said, well, we're going to take 100 properties off your hands. We want them at a certain price, even though they're listed in the MLS. They were getting them, even though someone else like myself, a small-time person, came in and offered 10% more. They just, I just wasn't getting them accepted because people were coming in and buying them in volumes. So that, that's where the competition kind of came in. I didn't really develop a strategy for buying them off FM, on MLS. That's why I went to, to start buying them or decided to start buying them from auctions. Now, there are other the routes as well that I've uh, looked into and have some success with, and those are through wholesalers. And there's, there's tons and tons of wholesalers down here, and their properties are well, well below uh, the fair market value as well. So, so that, that's another strategy that uh, sometimes use as opposed to going straight through the auctions. So are you keeping, like, so when you find something, let's say, through a wholesaler, what, what do you exactly do you do with it? Do you, well, do you hang on to it and, and rent them out, or are you um, selling them off to other investors? What, what is it that you're doing with them? The very first one I bought with, like through the MLS, um, and that's another point I wanted to make, is um, <clears throat> down here when you're buying distressed properties, or uh, foreclosed properties, you have to pay all cash for them because no bank is going to uh, give you a mortgage on a on an inhabitable property. So that's a the number one roadblock because you have to pay all cash for them. So when I bought, I finally got an offer accepted on an MLS property, and I thought I was you know quite excited that I finally got one. A few months into it, it, it and it was uh, we got it rented out. The realtor at the time he was also a property manager, so. We got a renter, or may have already, I think, actually it already had a renter in it, but he had replaced the renter within a month, I think it was. I realized, well, I since I'm paying cash for these, it didn't really do me any good because I ran out of money right away, and I was only getting a, you know, maybe an 8% return on my money at the time. So I thought, well, that, I wouldn't say it backfired, but I thought, well, I need more capital in order to keep buying properties. So I ended up uh, I ended up selling that, and that's when I started focusing on buying the auction properties with the intent of flipping properties. So buying them and uh, you know getting them in a good enough deal where you can buy them at 60, 60 to seventy percent of the fair market value, rehab them, and then sell them on uh, the open market like, as a retail property. Well, the very first one I bought, the market is so hot down here that like if you get a good enough deal on the property. You could turn around and sell it the next day for five or ten percent more than you paid for it. My partner and I down here. Well, my partner was the one that uh, led me on to this. Is you know he said we don't have to hang on to these and fix them. We could just sell them for a little bit more than we paid for them. I thought okay, well let's give this a shot. 
so yeah, we, we put it up for sale and, um, we, we had a contractor in one day to, uh, just to get a quote on the property, just to see what kind of work it needed. And I think we had a for sale sign, like just, uh, one of those, uh, that you can buy at Home Depot. And, uh, a lady walked in off the street and asked if the, the property was already, you know, if it was for sale. And, um, we said, well, yeah, it is, you know, we're planning on fixing it up first, but she said, well, I'd rather just buy it as is, you know, would you sell it to me as it is? And, uh, he called me up and he said, we, you know, we have this lady that looks, that's wanting to buy this property. What do you think? And I said, well, ask her what she'll pay for it. Like, don't give her a number. And she came back and it was, uh, I can't remember exactly what it was. It was 20 grand more than I think we paid for it. And I was like, wow, <laughs> that's incredible. I said, well, done deal. Let's, let's sign her up. So, uh, so that, that's kind of how the, uh, the strategy evolved is this, right. We're trying to find the, a deal as we can and just turn around. Basically, they're almost like a wholesale deal, so we turn around and just wholesale them to uh, to other investors. Now, you can do that before you close even on them now sometimes. Do you do that? Uh, well, yeah. As soon as, as, soon as we uh, get title to them, we, we start marketing right away. Um, but we can't, yeah, we can't actually sell them until you get the title. So um, generally, it takes anywhere from two to three weeks to get title. They're kind of backed up right now, so it takes a little bit. Like once you buy it from the auction, you have to pay within 24 hours, and then. Uh, oh, okay, right. Yeah. Because I'm yeah. I'm forgetting you're at the auction. So the hedge funds have actually backed off quite a bit too, haven't they? Like yeah. just realizing that it's impossible to manage all of those properties once they've got them. I, I've heard that now you can get back in there a little better. Yeah, you're yeah you're absolutely right. They've. <laughs> I was actually looking on one of the public hedge funds. Well, I don't know if you call them public, but it was. I think it was one that converted into a read. I was looking at their financials uh, not too long ago, and I was just amazed. Um, if you read into the fine print, that over a third of their properties that they're holding are vacant right now. Still, you know, and they've held them for I don't know how long they've held them, but probably at least a year. So yeah, they're definitely having their issues with keeping them properly managed, and the returns aren't as stellar as I think they were looking on paper. So. Yeah, so a lot of them have backed off now, mainly because the prices have appreciated enough that they're starting to turn around and sell them now, and you know they've made the returns there. But, uh, but yeah, there's definitely uh, some issues with with. Uh, I, I think they were um, like growing pains. You know, they they took on thousands and thousands, not uh, realizing that they're not as easy to manage as they, you know, as a mom and pop investor that can you know keep a closer eye on their properties if they only have. And um, how many millions of investors funds? To, to have those houses sit there vacant as well too. Yeah, that, exactly. that kill, it's such a man. I just don't understand how people people with too much money, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, but uh, yeah, it's so it's becoming a little less competitive now. Um, another thing that happened was uh, the inventory dried right up um, back a few years ago. Uh, people that you know, either had their home foreclosed on or they were still making payments and their homes were underwater. Um, underwater meaning that their homes were less than their mortgages were. Um, many people could afford to keep their payments up, but if they sold, they would take a loss. So a lot of people were just hanging on to their properties until the market, you know, eventually appreciated enough that they could turn on to un unload them. So that uh, that caused a, a huge dry up in the, in the inventory that was available. So that's one of the reasons that, Another reason the competition was so high at the time. Finding now that uh, you know the market's appreciated quite substantially from the lows of 2011, 2012, 
a lot of people are able to uh, at least break even on their properties now. So if they're, you know, looking for jobs elsewhere in another state, what have you, they're not as afraid to do now do that now because they know that they can get out of their house without taking a huge loss. So, what do you think? What's uh, one of the things you like best about this strategy? Well, I guess the best thing is you can make a quick profit. You know, if you can, uh, like our, our our game plan all along is to uh, get an in and out in and out of a property. If we're not fixing it up, that is, like if we're just going to sell it to a, another uh, investor within three months, and we try to make the gross margin like three percent a month, three you know three to four percent a month. So that's you know on an analyzed basis, that's about forty percent. Um, so that that's the main thing I like about the strategy is you can get in and out quick. I mean, there is a huge risk involved, but if you do all your homework up front, then, uh, you know, you can minimize as much of those risks as you possibly can. You know, I, I've hit, I've definitely hit a few snags along the way that were learning experiences, I guess you could call. <laughs> Things that, uh, you know, you, look, you know what to look out for the next time. So they're kind of a, an education, a financial education as well at the same time. So um, another thing I should mention as well is um, since like, financing down here is, the lenders are starting to loosen their purse strings, so the um, U.S. citizens are starting to have uh, less and less problems getting uh, getting mortgages as long as their credit scores are good and they don't have any past bankruptcies and what have you. However, for foreigners, or they call them uh, foreign nationals or Canadians or uh, anybody like outside of the U.S., like whether they're from U.K. or Australians, Getting financing is like almost impossible. Now there are a few banks that will lend to Canadians, but they only will do uh, one, maybe two properties. Um, and they're great programs. They're twenty percent down and uh, basically same rate as you can get as a U.S. citizen, but you're limited to one. And they basically have to be over a hundred thousand dollars. So if you're looking at a property that's anywhere from fifty to hundred, which is not, you know, it's definitely uh, not unheard of anywhere in the U.S., then you know you're you're almost. Uh, and at odds getting yourself uh, financing on the property. So there's a program that uh, came out about a year ago and uh, it's called the portfolio loan. And it's basically a commercial loan, same as if you're buying a commercial property or an apartment building. A lot of these lenders are realizing that people are buying up properties in bulk and they want to get financing on them. So the good thing about this is, is uh, the, the loan is not based on your, um, your debt to income ratio or your credit score. And that's the main reason why Canadians or foreigners can't get a mortgage down here. It's, we don't just, we just want any credit in the U S. Um, so these loans are based on the, uh, the debt or sorry, the, uh, the performance of the properties themselves, same as a commercial building. The lender is going to look at uh, how well it's performing, you know, what the debt service cover or coverage ratio is, uh, what the cash flow is, um, you know, those types of metrics versus how much income you have personally. So uh, I sort of looked into that about six months ago. So another um, area that I'm looking into, and I'm just putting together one right now, it's uh, I'm looking at purchasing anywhere between 10 and 15 properties, and they're actually in the Ohio area. Um, reason for Ohio is the the property uh, you get much better cash flow there than you can get in a lot of the uh, the southern states. Um, you know, you can buy a property anywhere from fifty to seventy-five grand, and they rent anywhere from seven hundred to eleven hundred dollars. So it's major, major, major cash flow, and you can wrap it up into a portfolio. One. And they're doing uh, as low as twenty-five percent down, and the rates are around six percent, which is yeah, it's a little bit higher, but uh, you know, you it allows you to get into a, a large number of properties without having to pay cash for them. So mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. That's 
Yeah. You know, I think I have one property that that meets that one percent uh, rent to value ratio. Okay. Yeah. Only one. So. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. Like it, I've. It's pretty possible to do that out there a lot. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like one percent, it would be the bare minimum you would I would consider at for any U.S. property. Yeah. Um, you know, typically they're anywhere between one and one and a half percent the the rent ratio. Now, if you start getting above one and a half percent, then you're starting getting to uh, riskier type properties, you know, not so desirable areas, um, lower income areas, that kind of thing. They do work for people, but you have to have you have to be local and like, you have to have either boots on the ground or be there yourself to kind of look over them. Whether you have a property manager or not, um, they're just they're just a little bit more risky. So, yeah, anything above one point five to two percent is. Uh, they look great on paper, but uh, you know the the reality isn't always what uh, what you see on pro- on paper, right? So, well, so there you go. There's a bunch of benefits, not only just the weather. So, what are you are you? Um, I guess you're down there until they say, okay, Canadian, you've got to come back for a certain amount of time, and then and then that's it. <laughs> no, unfortunately, I uh, I don't have a, a visa or anything yet, but uh, that's the next thing on my uh, list of things to do, so I could stay longer than than they allow. No, I just uh, I come down here for a week at a time, kind of thing, and go back um, once every once every month or two. So yeah, I would love to be able to stay down here and call myself a, a snowbird or snowflake, I guess if you want to call them that, um, a younger snowbird. Uh, I'm not quite there yet, but that's that's the game plan um, in the long run. Um, and then eventually move down here, maybe full time. So that's, yeah, well, if I was going to advise you on anything, I would say don't come back this week. That's <laughs> no. I, I haven't actually booked my return flight yet, so I'm uh, watching the weather to see when the best time to come back is. So uh, it's, uh, it's not looking too brosy up there at the moment, that's for sure. No, it's not. No. Do you want to share one of the biggest challenges that you've faced in your uh, investing career? Um, sure. Well, you know, I've had I've had several challenges over my real estate investing career. But last year, 2014, was likely my most challenging year in real estate. I know we, I know we don't have too much time left, so I'll try to keep this as short as possible. So back in uh, the spring of last year, I um, so in this U.S. investing group that I was part of, there's there's quite a few people that uh, join up and do joint ventures together. So a couple guys I um, got in contact with from uh, from Calgary. They had a couple of interesting looking apartment deals in the Ohio area and asked if I'd be interested or asked a few people if they'd be interested and I reached my hand out and said, yeah, that looks like a, those look like some pretty good deals. So I got involved with them. Um, everything was going, actually the first property was, uh, it was a bit of a, a dog's breakfast, I guess, to <laughs> put it uh, diplomatically. Um, it needed a lot, a lot of work. It was only about 30% occupied, um, the, and the rest of the place was basically trashed. So we were looking at buying it, fixing it up, and turning around, flipping it. Well, no insurance company across the entire U.S. would touch this thing with a 10-foot pole. We just couldn't get insurance with it. And I think it was about uh, two days before the due diligence period ended, and we actually had the clause in in our contracts saying that you know we had the right to uh, cancel if we couldn't get insurance. Well, two days beforehand, we said we can't get insurance, so we have to back out of the deal. We had uh, a substantial amount in, uh, they call it an earnest deposit down in the U.S. or like a, a deposit to uh, to hold the property. Substantial amount. Well, the realtor 
um, on the other end, the selling realtor was, uh, I think the deal had fallen through a couple times before with other people. And I guess he just, he just got fed up with this thing falling through. He ended up uh, filing a lawsuit against us for breach of contract, which we hadn't. He was just being unethical, um, you know, when he filed it in the state of Ohio, knowing full well that we would have to come down there and fight it and hire lawyers. And anyhow, uh, we ended up settling and we only got half of our deposit back. <laughs> so that, that was a bit of a learning experience. Um, at the same time, on the other deal we were doing, we it, it was going well. Um, we had the inspections done. We had appraisals done. Everything was going great. Um, about two days before it was about supposed to close, like financial close, our uh, lender had basically disappeared off the face of the earth. And we had given him some money up front, like an application fee, I think it was, which we learned afterwards that you should never give anybody an application fee regardless of how, uh, <laughs> how uh, professional they look. So he disappeared and we couldn't close. Luckily, the sellers on the other end, um, you know, we'd been way past our due diligence period, signed off on that. Luckily, they were very understanding and didn't, uh, you know, claim breach of contract at the time. They uh, they understood that, you know, this was a, a scam that we got ourselves into. Um, so the guy basically disappeared off the face of the earth, like I said. Well, the lender we had used was through a broker that uh, many of us had used for many deals over the past few years, like a lot of people in our group. She took it upon herself to chase this guy down. She got the FBI involved, um, and they tracked him down. And funny enough, he was down here in Florida, and uh, we weren't the only ones that got scammed. Apparently, he'd been doing it for years and scammed dozens and dozens of other people out of their money. And uh, they basically threw his carcass in jail. So, oh, wow. <laughs> so yeah, so um, we ended up getting our, our application fee back. Through the broker but you know we had spent a lot of money on due diligence like uh, the inspections and appraisals and so uh, you know which of course we didn't get back so that was a uh, you know like I said that was a trying time at the same time this was going on sorry to drag this out but this is you know this is like I said one of my most challenging years I had a property that I had purchased down here in Florida through the auction it was a property that was in Miami long story short the guy that owned it before um, was uh, raising dogs on the property and he had collected thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars of fines for raising dogs on the property. One for not having a vet license, not having a business license, uh, the list went on and on and on. The day before it was supposed to close, we had it sold and was going to make a nice toddy little profit. The uh, lawyer from the other end had called up and said he found all these violations on the property that didn't show up on title, but uh, they were, you know, they resided with the uh, the county or the municipality. So the, the title was clear. We could have sold the property, but if anybody were to buy the property and go to fix it up and get a permit on it, then the city would uh, not allow until all these violations were paid off. <laughs> uh, so why, why is it, just out of curiosity, why is it those violations went with the property and not the owner? That I, I'm still scratching my head on that one. I, uh, we, my partner and I hired a, a lawyer, or the lawyer that we use for all of our deals down here. We got him in on the case, and they, they, I guess over the years, they, especially since the recession, um, so many people were were uh, losing their properties to foreclosures, and all these violations existed on the properties with the former owners that. Uh, you know, the, the cities were in dire straits as well, like losing so much revenue from, uh, you know, losing taxes and what have you. 
they decided they implemented a, a new. It wasn't. It wasn't really passed. I, I still don't understand how this works, but they uh, they somehow got it through the government that they were able to attach any violations, regardless of where or how it occurred. It was with the former owner. It got attached to the property, whether he was still there or not. That just sounds so frustrating because then why – like if it doesn't show up on title, yeah. that would be so aggravating. Wow. Oh, it, oh, it was the most aggravating thing uh, to go through. So that, that closing, luckily we had an understanding buyer at the time. Um, it got delayed probably two, three months <clears throat> fighting with the, the city or the, the, the government. Um, we ended up getting the fines reduced. Fairly significantly, but the amount of money I had to spend on the lawyer's fees in order to get it down was uh, kind of outweighed the – well, I wouldn't say it outweighed the cost of how much they reduced them. But in the end, uh, we ended up getting it sold with uh, the violations taken off. But uh, I think we ended up losing a bit of money on that property or um, I think we you know, lost a few grand kind of thing. But anyway, like I said, that was a, another learning experience, uh, quote-unquote. And then if uh, if you can believe it, while this was all going on, so this is all happening at the same time, so you can imagine I was pulling my hair out for, you know, in the spring of the year last year. Just mm-hmm. <laughs> I couldn't believe these things were happening at the same time to me. Same time, um, my uh, my student apartment in London, Ontario, uh, which had 10 beds, property manager just didn't end up getting it rented. Like, he got zero out of the 10 rooms rented. And most leases at universities, they go for a year. You know, they go from, uh, usually, typically from May to May. Right. Well, coming up upon May, he they didn't have any of the rooms rented, <laughs> if you can believe it. So I went from uh, having a fully occupied student residence to zero overnight, basically, at, uh, at the end of April. Um you know, you can, as you can imagine, the the carrying costs in that place were fairly significant. So it was uh, between uh, money going out the door and all these other uh, calamities I had to go on at the same time, and then to <laughs> to go into a, a cash negative position, a major cash negative position was a was a bit of a, a challenge, I guess, at the time. Um, and I had actually planned on selling the property in the summer just to you know, get some of my uh, equity out of it and start using it for more of my investments down here in the States. And, you know, no one in the right mind wanted to buy an empty property. So um, it basically sat empty the whole summer and I didn't get it sold until, uh, actually I didn't get it sold until November. Another story how uh, it fell out of, the deal fell through three times when I did get it sold. <laughs> so uh, yeah, last year was definitely trying, but uh, you know what, I've, uh, you know, I wouldn't say a lot of people in my position would probably quit. Like my wife still asked me, like, why are you in this business? But you know what? In fact, like those were all learning experiences and I've learned so much from mistakes that, you know, this year I'm more motivated than ever to make it the most successful year I've ever had. So now with the student rental, let's say, what was it? So what was it that made it not get rented out? Well, there's a, Couple of factors that uh, that's happened. One was um, I'm not I'm not pointing fingers or maybe you should. Yeah. Sounds like you should. <laughs> Part of the reason was the property manager just didn't. I don't think he advertised it as aggressively as he should have. Even though I was pressing him from Christmas. I mean, you'd have to try pretty hard to not get even one room rented out. It's I don't, well, like that almost sounds like a personal vendetta <laughs> or something to me. I well, mean, I the, guess. The issue was at the time, so it's a 10-bed, but it's, it's divided up into two units. Mm-hmm. So it's got two uh, two units of five bedrooms. Yeah. 
Um, it, it's a purpose-built student apartment, so it's got like a common area and, and, and you know several bathrooms in each unit, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. In the past, they had always rented them to groups of fives, so they were looking for groups of fives. Right. And those are much harder to find than ones and twos and threes and even fours. So that's what their focus was. They were just trying to get a group of five because it's a lot easier for them just to get a group. Oh, you know, sign one lease and off they're off to the races. Mm-hmm. Whereas they should have been taking any in that uh, was willing to, you know, take one or two rooms. And, you know, I was telling them at the time, like by February, I said, let's just take anybody and we'll fill up the rest of the rooms over the summer if we need to. But uh, no, they just they just decided to stick with the groups. So um, the second factor, apparently the uh, the university has been educating students on the legalities of the uh, Landlord Tenant Act. Technically, they don't have to give their 60 day notice until obviously 60 days are up. So the end of February. Well, these students were humming on hawing. Some of them, I guess, were humming on hawing on whether they were going to stay or not, and they didn't actually give their notice till the end of February. Um, but the big, the third and the the biggest factor was uh, the market just it kind of got saturated with with uh, new um, student accommodations in London, and it's not just London. I think Waterloo starting is was the first to experience it. There's several big time developers coming in from not just the U.S. but some in Canada as well, like some of like the well backed REITs that are building uh, purpose built student uh, apartment buildings. I think Waterloo's got four or five of them that have sprung up the last few years. And these things are, you know, they hold anywhere from 500 to 1,000 students. <clears throat> well, in London, they built their first one last year, and it opened during the summer of last year. So that uh, that took a big chunk out of the the demand. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that so basically those are the three factors, I think, that uh, that came into play. But uh, anyways, I since I've sold it, it it's... Someone local in my uh, local investing group through the Roxer Real Estate, they 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 purchased it and actually they had no problem getting it renting it again. So you know I think it was just a kind of a fluke last year that uh, you know those kind of three <laughs> factors came into play. Yeah, well I know for student rentals you really have to find the right property management group. It can you know really do a number on you if you don't. Yeah, so, yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, well now I guess um. You had a lot of probably you probably had a lot of successes last year as well though too. I mean, it's hard to look at those when you're pulling your hair out on all of yeah. the challenges that you come across. But uh, right, that's right. cool. Can you um, your main focus is buying on the auction at the auction. Is that your main focus now, or is it uh, out of state stuff that you're doing? So a little bit of both. So with the auction purchases, um, obviously you have to pay all cash for them, uh, and, and it's a very capital intensive uh, strategy to use. So my uh, partner and I decided, you know, as opposed to just, well, I was kind of funding it myself, you know, we're doing one at a time. We thought, well, it'd be nice to do, you know, two, three, four a month kind of thing and just keep rolling them over and over and over. So I actually developed a business plan, like a full-blown, I don't know, 40-page business plan or something like that, that uh, I put together to uh, start attract, trying to attract investors. Um so my my partner's son-in-law is from the UK and he's uh, he's very well connected. So he's uh, he's actually agreed. He, he, well, we're we're making him part of our joint venture. He's going to come in and uh, he he's agreed to uh, try to bring some of his uh, higher net worth acquaintances, I guess, on board. Um, so raising some money through that that aspect. So so that's kind of what I, what we're focusing on right now is just raising a larger sum of money in order to uh, start buying more of the auctions. 
So then my other uh, real estate endeavor, I guess, is uh, putting together these portfolio packages of houses. Um, and, and in that, I'm uh, I'm actually looking to bring in uh, joint venture investment partners on, and bo- on board as well. So it's like everything in real estate, you know, you're, you're always looking for capital and uh, joint venture partners. So, you know, I think everybody's kind of in the same boat. Once you get to a certain level, you're always looking for money. You're not looking for money, but, you know, you're trying to help other people invest and I just listened to your uh, your podcast from last week with Joey Ragona and um, is it Ragona? I think yep. I pronounced it right. Ragona, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he had a, some really good insights on uh, attracting joint venture partners, and uh, yeah, I think I'm just definitely going to start implementing some of the some of the things he mentioned on that show. So, so that, that's kind of my focus at the moment is uh, the, the two different strategies: buying from auctions and putting portfolio loans together. Um, one thing I should mention, you know, when I was buying, buying through the auctions and I'm turning around and selling them, I'm thinking, well, that's great. I'm making quick cash, but I'm not actually building generational wealth. <laughs> so I was like, well, I got to start buying some properties and holding them. So that's when I started doing a bunch of research on how I could get financing down here. And that's how I stumbled upon the portfolio loans. So, you know, the, the, the model that I put together is a fairly lucrative model. The, like the cash on cash return alone is over, you know, it's anywhere from 10 to 15%. And that's not accounting uh, principal pay down or uh, equity buildup or anything. So, um, so just cash flow alone, you know, you're looking at some pretty decent returns. Yeah, very good. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay, you're going to be at the Investor Forum this year. What excites you most about that? Yeah, that, well, I was actually most excited actually to get uh, asked to participate in it. So um, there's a, they've got these new panel discussions of, uh, you know, just real life investors that uh, just go up and tell their story. So that's one of the, that's the panel that I'm on. Uh, So, uh, you know, I'm excited to be a participant in that. Um, And I don't know if you've seen the lineup of speakers. They got some amazing speakers this year. Um, You know, I'm quite honored to be in the lineup with the likes of uh, Bruce Firestone and uh, Don Campbell. Like, you know, those are some pretty big names in the real estate space. So that's that's definitely what's uh, most exciting, I think. Yeah. Okay. Well, this has uh, been a really informative interview. I thank you a lot for taking the time to come out and talk to me today. I look forward to seeing you there at the Investor Forum. It's going to be my first time there. But Yeah, so I guess you've been there a few times. Yeah, yeah, you're gonna love it. Like I've the last few years I've attended. Like last year, I uh, when I attended, I um I like I like to try to visit as many booths as possible to see what people are doing, what different strategies are using. And I actually met so the um, these properties in Ohio that I'm looking at uh, putting in the portfolio loan. Uh, that's where I met the guy that was selling them last year, and you know that was you know almost a year ago, and you know I developed a nice relationship with them and build up a lot of trust and uh we're actually looking at doing some something together down here in florida he actually he's from florida lives in florida so we're actually looking to put together uh something similar down here doing a rental uh turnkey rentals as well so it's a it's a great venue for uh networking like it's it's just, it's just amazing and you yeah know, it hearing... sounds like you don't have a lot of free time no no if uh if you hit every booth yeah you you it definitely takes at least one day to hit every booth and chat with all the people so it's uh it's definitely time consuming but it's well worth it in my opinion well where can people learn more about you right now probably the best place is uh you can start out with my linkedin profile it's chat or shot u r b s h o t t that's i think how you found me you reached out to me I also have a website. My company is called Equigrowth Capital, and the website is www.equgrowth.com. So it's uh, kind of corporate looking. It doesn't really have much of a personal feel to it, but it's 
kind of by design that way, um, looking for raising, uh, you know, from overseas investors and what have you. Another place you could find me, if uh, many of your listeners may or may not have heard of a site called BiggerPockets.com. I don't know if you ever heard of them either, Rob. Oh, yeah, I have. Oh, have you? Okay. Yeah, so I they, listen to their show too. You listen oh, to their yeah. show? Oh, yeah, yeah. I listen to all their podcasts. Yeah, they've got a fantastic show. Yeah, yeah. So it's more of a U.S.-based real estate investing website. they got some fantastic forums, and I'm uh, actively participating. Participating on them all the time, or actually debating, I should say. <laughs> They're almost more of a debate most days than anything, but uh, you know, it's fantastic. It's a great learning tool for not only U.S. but that you know, real estate investing is for pretty much universal, right? So it's uh, um, just different local laws and what have you between countries. So so it's a great uh, it's a great free resource for learning as well. So, so I recommend a lot of people go to that if they're looking to start out. And then are you on Twitter? I am not on Twitter, no. Okay. <laughs> I'm not a, not a big Twitter guy. but uh, No, I, me neither. I'm trying to get uh, into it, though. Yeah, myself included. Yeah. Okay, well, you can find me on Twitter. I am at Rob Breakthrough, and Sandy is at the Sandy McKay, S-A-N-D-Y-M-A-C-K-A-Y. Thanks again, Chad, and thank all of you out there for joining us. It's time to invest in your breakthrough, so get out there, and we will see you next time.